Uh, this is uh, Chuck Moskowitz. Thanks for joining me, everyone. I am live streaming live here at 12 noon, Monday through Friday, at the usual affiliates or the usual suspects, as it were. And um, let's see here. My guest is Keith Preston. Keith is the author of Attack the System, A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century, among other books. Keith, thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Chuck. All right, Keith, tell me a little bit about how it is that you got involved with anarchist ideas and politics. Well, that's a very uh, long story that goes back for decades. Um, I think that I first became interested in the concept of uh, uh, libertarian-oriented politics or anti-authoritarian politics probably around 1980. I remember uh, that year there was a presidential election, and I remember seeing a television interview with a man from the Libertarian Party um, who was running for president, and I had never heard of them before. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, uh, yeah, these, this, these people sound interesting. That's too bad I'm not old enough to actually vote for them. Uh, the first time I ever heard of anarchism was probably around 1983. I was uh, in high school at the time, and I remember reading in my English literature textbook about William Godwin. It was actually uh, some uh, information about uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, a romance poet, but it mentioned that his father-in-law was William Godwin, the anarchist. And I'm like, well, wow, that's interesting. I uh, never heard of that before. Uh, and then a few years later, I was in college, and I was interested in all of the uh, usual uh, ideas that college students often start getting into, philosophy and politics and all that kind of stuff. And I started thinking about well, what am I politically? And uh, I had come from a very Republican-oriented, conservative background, and I knew I wasn't really that for a variety of reasons. And I started looking at the other side of that, Democrats and, and liberalism, and decided I wasn't that either. Uh, so I started looking at all the other alternative points of view, and I uh, came to anarchism uh, largely just through reading about different points of view in generic sources, like the encyclopedia. Uh, there was no internet or anything like that back then. Um, so, and from there, I pretty much took it from there. I started reading up on anarchism as a philosophy and its different ideas, and uh, then I started actually meeting real-life anarchism and uh, anarchists and becoming involved in different kinds of anarchist groups, usually anarchist groups from the left, like the... Uh, the IWW actually belonged to them at one point. Uh, mm -hmm. I was actually a delegate in the IWW in the late uh, 1980s. The Wobblies. Uh, yeah, the Wobblies. I was, mm -hmm. I was one of them. Yeah. Uh, and then I also belonged to a number of other types of groups like that, mostly student-oriented groups or more activist, you know, left activist type groups. Uh, and then also along the way, I was still investigating libertarianism. I actually belonged to the Libertarian Party for a while. I actually was, in, I was always interested in anti-authoritarian ideas generally. I even belonged to the ACLU, which was a liberal group at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, that was back in the early 1990s. And then in the 1980s, when the militia movement and the you know, so-called far right started becoming uh, something of an undercurrent, I became interested in some of those tendencies, the sovereign citizens and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then, uh, through my interest in that, I actually started discovering points of view that were about moving past the usual left-right model of the spectrum, because I was always about that. I mean, I, I, as an anarchist, I always thought, well, anarchism is really beyond the left and right model of the spectrum, because you find different types of anarchism that are all over the spectrum, and you find issues and ideas that might be related to anarchism that either can be either left, right, or middle, or uh, maybe nowhere. 
Uh, so I was always interested in philosophies that wanted to move past the left-right thing. And then I started discovering more of those ideas. And I started finding movements like that in Europe that had similar views. Uh, you know, the European New Right, third positionism, all that kind of stuff. And while I never really became that or, or fully embraced that, I started incorporating some of that into my own approach as well. Uh, and then around... Uh, 20 years ago, I started my own project that, uh, well, it, it, what evolved out of it is, is the, the website Attack the System and, and the network that's associated with that. Uh, and then, uh, and that idea was largely to create a form of anarchism that was sort of an umbrella movement, uh, more interested in metapolitics. That is, we take the idea of anarchism, we embrace all the schools of anarchism, we embrace the different ideological cousins of anarchism and, and issues that are uh, relatively uh, connected to something pertaining to anarchism. You know, it's what I call the anti-authoritarian paradigm. Um, anarchist historians, ranging from people like Max Netlau to uh, to uh, Peter Marshall, have talked about how, extending all the way backward through history, you see this lengthy trajectory tra trajectory of anti-authoritarian philosophies and movements, movement uh, emerging at different times, and they may have a very different orientation or focus, uh, but. If you, uh, for example, we can trace some proto-anarchist ideas all the way back to the ancient Greeks and schools of thought like the Cynics and the Stoics or, or back to ancient China and schools of thought like Taoism. Uh, and then we can uh, also find similar uh, movements in terms of peasant rebellions and slave revolts and all that kind of stuff in the Middle Ages and, and in the uh, historic Middle East. Uh, mm -hmm. and, then, and, then, and then on into the Enlightenment. Uh, during the period of the Enlightenment, we start to see the emergence of actual uh, proto-anarchist philosophers, like if you've ever read uh, Edmund Burke's Vindication of Natural Society, or William Godwin's uh, Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, or even on into the modern era, you see Max Turner, his uh, unique in its own, or sometimes translated as, uh, as the ego in its own. And then from there, you actually see organized anarchist movements developing, uh, develop organized around the economic theories of people like here, yeah, Joseph Proudhon, uh, Matthias Bakunin, Peter Kropotkin, more of a left, almost socialist type of anarchism. You also see radical liberal anarchism emerging in the form of thinkers like Paul Newport Depute and Gustav Molinari. And then you see an American style, individualistic, almost Jeff Thomas Jefferson influenced anarchism emerging uh, in the form of thinkers like Sandra Spooner, uh, uh, Benjamin Tucker, and, and things of that type. So, and then, and then this whole uh, trajectory of anarchist and anti-authoritarian thought has started to uh, continue to build on that. Uh, you know, in the 60s, for example, there was a wave of anarchist thinkers that emerged uh, in, in places like France, uh, situationist, and uh, some things that were influenced by postmodernism and existentialism. Uh, you saw the new left influence currents of anarchism that were more about anti-imperialism, ecology, and, and, and cultural liberation, and things of that nature. Then there was a, a wave of uh, more right-leaning, or at least uh, or laissez faire type anarchists, Murray Rothbard, and people like that. And it's still like that today. And new tendency, new trajectories keep emerging all the time. There's primitive anarchists who are, uh, have a, a critique of technology on one hand, and then you have transhumanist anarchists that are very techno- uh, mm -hmm. say the Luddites, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, the Luddites were a tendency that existed back in the early 19th century that mm -hmm. uh, was largely involved peasant rebellions against the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Revolution was having the effect of undermining the livelihoods of traditional agrarian peasant societies as well as the artisans, the small craftspeople, and all of that. 
so they'd be Luddites thought that the way to correct that problem simply to smash up industrial machinery, industrial technology. Right, right. So it's really, uh, Ned Ludd probably never really existed. He was probably an apocryphal figure. Mm. Uh, but, you know, kind of ironic, you know, a mythical figure like, say, William Tell or something like that. There's no evidence he was a real person. Uh, but there is uh, th- that tendency within anarchism, that kind of emphasis on, on uh, anti-technology, anti-modernism, ecology does exist, but that's, there's also technophile versions of anarchism as well. So you have that. You have a lot of different dichotomies within anarchism that are interesting when it comes to things like technology, pacifism and violence, religion, uh, you know, uh, collectivism and individualism, and all those kinds of things. Seems to me that the entire history of civilization is a balance an imperfect balance between anarchism and authority. You know, it's part of human nature that we want to have as much individual sovereignty as possible, you know, where we don't derive our authority from the state, but, I mean, the Judeo-Christian idea is that we derive our authority from from uh, a, an unreachable God who is presents a, um, a program of morals and ethics that is not can't be manipulated by governments and can't be manipulated by the imperfect hand of man. So, you know, we we, we strive to be free in that context, you know, and I think that in a way the United States embraces that idea. It's kind of a balance between, you know, that, that you know, as the Declaration of Independence says, that we were endowed by the creator, not by the state. And yet we recognize that, you know, we have to set up a government uh, what what Washington called, and I'm using, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the the fearful master, you know, that we have to bind the chains of the Constitution down by, you know, because it's, um, you know, it's government is force, government is in a way violence, it's a, it's coercion, but yet we have to bind it by the chains of the Constitution so that it can be limited and that we can maintain control of it, and that the balance of power is between the sovereign individual and the limited government and keeping it limited while at the same time preserving a basic social fabric so that we can function because we can't do everything by ourselves. But I want to talk a little bit about the history of anarchism and then we'll get into the philosophy of anarchism. Um, You mentioned Godwin. I think that uh, Mary Shelley is a very interesting figure, the author of Frankenstein, his uh, daughter, and married to Percy Shelley. In that 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 novel is a warning to the world about, you know, the artificial scientific control by people. I mean that that if we're going to have human beings creating people as opposed to being created naturally, and you know that that there's a very dark side to that. It's a very dangerous side to it, and um, you know, and, and the, the you know it shows the results of it. And also, Michael Bakunin seems to me to be a major figure in anarchist history. And he was uh, he had a falling out with Marx, but he was very much part of that system. And that gets into the question of, you know, anarchism, which I think is natural to all of us. We all want to throw off authority. We want to throw off our own personal authority in a way and try to imagine and, and you know, actualize ourselves and, and take a look at existence. But but it's it's neither left nor is it right in that it's the it's the exact opposite in that if the further to the left you go, the more authority you have. I mean the left is all about earthly power, 
you know, public ownership of the means of production. I mean, that's the definition of socialism and that Marx saw the progression as being each stage with more and more authority until eventually he reaches a utopia, which he called communism, which is the world, one world ant colony, where we no longer have to have any, any um, hierarchy at all, no longer have any differences. We're all de facto equal which is impossible and completely unnatural and could never happen. But then on the right, you have an anti-government tendency, the libertarian tendency, as described by people like Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard and others, where you have less and less government in that, like Ayn Rand only saw government as having three roles, police, the court system, and uh, public enforcement of contracts. Other than that, nothing else, and an army. And the further right you go, the less government you have until you reach anarchy. So they both reach in the middle, you know, whereas you have total government as a state of anarchy, communism, because man no longer has a brain and everybody's just equal and we all exist in harmony with nature and government, as Marx says, withers away. Or you have the far right version, which is the complete reduction and diminution of government to the point where it barely, if, if not totally, doesn't exist anymore. Well, those, you presented a lot of interesting ideas there, and you find uh, various anarchist thinkers historically that have, are within these various traditions that you're describing. Um, when it comes to uh, someone like Mary uh, Shelley, uh, Mary Godwin Shelley, yeah, the, the novel Frankenstein, you know, it's one of the classic horror novels, and it pre predates the modern horror genre. But that's what that was. It was a warning about the potential abuses of science. And it's really interesting to consider that she was writing in the early 19th century when modern science, scientism as an ideology was really starting to develop. Uh, and out of the Enlightenment, there came this idea of human perfectibility, the idea that you can simply improve or perfect human beings through science or through having the right social structures and things like that. That was a very pervasive current in the Enlightenment. And... Uh, in the 19th century, I started to see the idea of you know, using science as a means of human manipulation in the sense of, well, the most extreme example was eugenics. Uh, this kind of thinking became uh, the foundation of eugenics, where we can improve the species biologically through, through scientific manipulation. Right. I, think, uh, I think Mary Shelley's uh, uh, ideas were sort of a warning against some of that kind of stuff that did come out at a later date. Um, and so that's one aspect that I think that you do find in some lot of proto-anarchist thinking. You mentioned the rivalry between Marx and Bakunin. Uh, Bakunin was arguably one of the most proficient and early critics of Marxism because he actually knew Marx personally. These guys all knew each other. And his, Bakunin's main critique of Marxism is that Marx's idea of the worker state, the red revolutionary state, would ultimately be just another kind of authoritarianism of the type, type they were supposedly fighting against. Bakunin was a Russian and Marx was a German. They were used to these kinds of authoritarian autocratic societies that existed in the 19th century. And Bakunin said that if you take Marx's ideas seriously, what you're going to end up with is a red czar, you know, a guy that's just going to be going to be just as bad as the, the current czar, just as bad as any of the absolute monarchs of Europe and stuff like that. Uh, and he argued that, uh, that socialism of that type, you know, uh, state socialism, would be 
uh, in practice would be a type of authoritarian bureaucratic system, which is what Marxism in practice actually was. I mean, every every right, country all about that power. claimed to be a Marxist state uh, was that kind of system. It was a one-party state, usually sure. the one high at the top of the pyramid. It's all about power, and it's the use of the state as a utopian object to then bring about the next stage in in human development, and uh, you know, which is, and they, they actually view the state. Hegel viewed the state as a living organism, literally, right. that had a birth, a, a, you know, a, a primary time, and then a death, and that Marx wanted to use the levers of the state to um, to try to implement a change in human nature by force. But Bakunin, as you say, he said that all this would do, all this would result in, is a red czar. However, is that not what anarchism results in if it's not put in a context of some kind of government? Because after all, authority is, I mean, we have, proved, we have we've demonstrated since the beginning of time that there, there needs to be some sort of an authority. The only question is, can it be controlled and limited by the people to serve the people as opposed to the other way around? And if you have anarchy, which has a violent side to it because it's not natural, just like communism, you have to, you know, no one's going to give, you know, no, in the same way that no one's going to give up their property for communism, that's why you need violence. Anarchism, to remove all government, also needs violence because people need government. So you're going to end up with a red czar in an anarchist state, and that's exactly what happened in Russia. Well, uh what the question you've raised is one is the same one, of course, that Hobbes raised, the classic question, which is the idea of, you know, what about order? Um, uh, uh, one of the primary differences, I think, that exists between various containing political philosophies is the question of, you know, order versus liberty versus equality. The left tends to be more about equality. Libertarians tend to be more about liberty. And the right, traditional conservatism, tends to be about order and civilization. And I, I don't think any of these things are mutually separated from each other. And to have one of these, you have to have at least some of the others. Um, but there's this question of, well, how do you have order in society uh, and in order to prevent chaos? And, of course, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, living in the middle of the English Civil War, he said, well, liberty doesn't work. Uh, all it does is produce chaos. So what we need is order. He was in favor of absolute monarchies that could keep order and keep rival political factions from engaging in civil war and things of that nature. Uh, now, the obvious problem with the Hobbesian view is, well, who watches the watchdog? You know, it's the idea of, okay, you have the guy that, uh, that uh, Hobbes called the Leviathan, and the idea was he's going to be the one who keeps order, but who watches him? And how did he prevent him from becoming a tyrant? And Hobbes seemed to basically say, well, maybe you can't. That's just tyranny is just the price you pay for order and civilization. And then out of that, of course, come subsequent thinkers from the Enlightenment era, like John Locke, for example, who said, well, it's not really enough to have order. You've also got to have breathing room for freedom and civilization. Otherwise, everything's just going to stagnate. Um, so that, that, that dichotomy has always existed, but when you, you mentioned Ayn Rand, there, there's an important point there. Um, first, I'll say that of all the different branches of libertarianism or anarchistic thought, the Randians, objectivists, are my least favorite, by the way. Um, but the, the traditional anarchism, and, and I think prototypes for anarchism, extending all the way back in history, were never simply about opposing an authoritarian government alone. You know, as like, like dictators and, and absolute monarchs and totalitarian regimes and things like that. Anarchism was always more about critiquing 
uh, concentrated power wherever it arises or arises or excessive authority wherever it arises. Uh, for instance, uh, a prototype for anarchism, one of its antecedents, was uh, the 18th century liberal philosophy associated with it. It comes out of thinkers like John Locke and then later Thomas Jefferson and on into the 19th century, someone like John Stuart Mill. But the idea there is concentrations of power are problematic. And in the 18th century, that meant you had the, the royal families, the, the dynasties, the monarchs. But you also had the aristocracy who monopolized the economic resources and the land and the guild monopolies. And then the, the church, the, usually the Catholic church, that monopolized intellectual life as well. So uh, certainly the early liberals were opposed to these kinds of concentrations of power and the, the classical anarchists even more so. The idea is concentrated power is a problem. It's not just the coercive power of the state. But it's also monopolies over resources and over cultural and intellectual life as well. So I think that that's one, one thing that a lot of modern so-called libertarians, particularly American-style libertarians, tend to miss, I think, is that concentrated power exists in a lot of different contexts. Uh, you have the Ayn Rand. Like Ayn Rand once said that big business is America's most persecuted minority, which I think is an absolutely absurd statement. No, big business is America's most privileged minority, uh, or most privileged anything. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that kind of thinking influences a lot of the modern right libertarian types. You know, They have the idea, well, let's just get government out of the way and let corporations do whatever they want and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't think it's that simple. I tend to have a view, like as an anarchist, I would say, yeah, I'm against the state. But I don't define the state simply as laws. I define the state as the ruling class apparatus. And that, in our system in the United States, would be the political government, obviously, but also the corporations, the banks, the military-industrial complex. I would say the mass media and the university system are part of that. A lot of elite think tanks and foundations and all sorts of institutional arrangements are part of this ruling class apparatus. And that is what controls not only the political system, but also the economy and the uh, intellectual and cultural life as well. For instance, I would say the media is the modern version of the church, or the uh, university system is the modern version of the church, in the sense that, th that those are the institutions that shape the ideas and values that permeate the society. Uh, just like the corporations, the mass corporations, all of these plutocrats that we have nowadays, they're just the modern version of the robber barons, or the modern version of the uh, feudal lords that we had back in the uh, Middle Ages. So I think that when we talk about anarchism, we have to talk about concentrated power generally, not just a formal state system. No, I mean, if you, now you're getting into some interesting things here because um, the I think in this country, starting pretty much in the late 19th century, but early 20th century, you had this emergence of what we might euphemistically call the Eastern Seaboard Liberal Establishment. It was the government and elements of the private sector kind of working together. In a way, it was perfected by Mussolini in Italy, I mean, where we had a council of corporations instead of a congress. And it was, an, you know, certain, certain corporations got monopoly rights and they, they didn't have to compete with others. It's not capitalism, really. It's state capitalism or it's, um, it's kind of what's going on, I think, in China today. And in this country, it's, it's become predominant, but in a much less formal sense. And, what, and you mentioned earlier also Proudhon, and you mentioned the Wobblies and, and them. They were syndicalists in that um, they believed that the best government ought to reside 
Not so much with local government, because that's more of a conservative idea. It's a Catholic idea, actually. But more that it would reside with guilds. It would reside with people involved in certain kinds of businesses who would become self-governing units that would have a lot of sovereignty over the lives of their own citizens, and it would be a more of a local phenomena. And I think the best expression of that today is the movement toward localism, which I think is a very positive thing. I mean, especially made possible by things like the internet. You don't have to necessarily, we no longer have big factories with 6,000 people punch a clock every day. Now you can work from home, you could work 24 hours a day, you could work anytime. And more and more people are, we're moving in a way back to the original vision of America that was embraced by people like Jefferson, where you know, the agrarian society, except instead necessarily of being agrarian, we, we have small businesses, small farms, small local industry, and it's a move more toward local control over our lives. It's a, it's a localist movement, which is very interesting, and which is sort of in line with a version of the syndicalist movement of the 19th century that was advocated by people like St. Simon and Proudhon. Um, and which was rejected by Marx at the Second Workers' Con um, Convention because they were more of a nationalized, internationalized, big government control, um, you know, utopian, messianic movement, where as opposed to that the individual is the locus of sovereignty under God. Um, I think in order for that system, however, to work, you need to have a moral and ethical context. Um, you know, you need to have faith. That has to be a part of it. It's, it can't be something that just um, goes on and, and that you get to invent, you know, moral and ethical standards yourself. You know, the human being isn't the source of that. In other words, there has to be a greater authority that is the originator of, of law and of morals and ethics. What do you think? Well, uh, again, you've raised a number of interesting points. Um, looking at American history, I think, yeah, I think what you're saying is, is quite correct, although I might turn the clock back a little bit further. If we look at the American Revolution of the 18th century, um, what that revolution amounted to was a revolution of what in European culture would have been called the upper middle class against the traditional elite. Uh, the, in traditional European societies, you had the, the elite, which was the, the royal uh, families, the titled aristocracy, and the established church, which would have been the Church of England in Britain. Uh, but underneath that, you had uh, an upper middle class that would have been uh, often very wealthy, uh, but also uh, not title, not no royal titles or aristocratic titles. And most of the leaders of the American Revolution were from that class. They were from what would have been in Europe the upper middle class, but not the elite. Uh, they, they were typically um, large landholders, bankers, merchants, and, and people of that type, but, uh, but not titled uh, elites. So I, I tend to interpret the American Revolution as a sort of an upper middle class revolution against the traditional elites. And then the system that they created, um, I, interestingly, the Articles of Confederation was the first American government. It was rejected in part because it was considered to be too populist or too democratic. Um, the, I think the, uh, the elites wanted to create a system, a new system, that would largely be a type of class dictatorship in the sense that this you know, rising uh, industrial merchant uh, banker class and, and planter class as well would be the ruling class of the new American Republic. 
Now, within that framework, there was always a conflict between the Southern agrarian interests on one hand and the Northern financial and, and mercantile and early industrial interests. And that's really how we got to Democrats and Republicans. And that's how we got to the Hamilton-Jeffersonian rivalry and all of that. That goes all the way back to the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, and I interpret the, the Civil War in that way. I, to me, the Civil War was ultimately a type of class war between the uh, southern, you know, almost quasi-feudal uh, agrarian interests on one hand. And I think the South was probably more akin to a traditional European society than the North. You know, and in many ways, I think the South more, like, more closely resembled the Spanish and Portuguese uh, colonies in, in Latin America than it did the English colonies. I mean, that's a that, you know, rough comparison. But I see that civil war as a, as a conflict between Southern agrarian, you know, quasi-feudalism, you know, or ever, at what may be early capitalism, early agrarian capitalism, uh, versus Northern industrial, mercantile, financial uh, capitalism. And ultimately, it's the North that gets the upper hand for a variety of reasons. And then that creates a pretext for the Industrial Revolution that happens in the late uh, 19th century. And then the emergence of the robber barons is this new industrial ruling class that in turn colludes with the state. Like around the time of the progressive eras, which you're referring to the late 19th century, early 20th century, you start seeing the robber baron types actually colluding with the state in order to create this kind of uh, more centralized, corporatized kind of planned economy, the so-called progressive era, uh, which, was on, which was based on the idea of scientific management of society and things like that. That's what you start to see emerging in the late 19th or 20th century. You see, you know, state, state, the expansion of the state, growth of plutocracy, growth of corporatism, uh, and, and the rationale behind this is this kind of scientism, this kind of efficient management of society, rationalization, the kind of stuff that Max Weber was writing about in Germany at the exact same time. Uh, and that becomes the prototype for the modern uh, ruling class that we have. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about culture, if you're talking about syndicalism and, and uh, uh, Proudhon and, and, and thinkers like that, yeah, their idea was a society that's largely decentralized, self-government, uh, governing based on economic associations, kind of like cooperatives, like you know, or communes or cooperatives or workers' councils or something like that. And I think you're right in the sense that... Uh, for a society to have a kind of libertarian like that uh, 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 system, there does have to be some cultural underpinnings for it. In fact, thinkers from the left have recognized that, like Antonio Gramsci, who was an Italian Marxist theorist during the Mussolini era, he actually argued that, well, before you can really have a certain kind of political system or economic system, you've got to have the cultural foundation for that as well. Yeah, but just to, just to interrupt, Gramsci talked about the long march through the culture right. as a way of subverting the cultural system and moving it toward collective Marxism. You know, oh, by, yeah. by gaining the upper, get, you know, gradually, this is what's happened, I think, with the American University. You know, through attrition, they've gotten rid of conservatives and libertarians it's mostly left-wingers now because they they want to gain the upper the high ground of the culture whether it be through academic through academia through uh, you know the foundations through our arts you know all of our cultural organizations music you know they're all into the revolutionary left idea of transforming human nature and i also don't think i agree with you on on regarding the at least the intent and the philosophy of the founders. I don't think it was 
class-based, regardless of which class they might have been in. I think it was um, set up so that there would be upward mobility and it would be a nation of, of small business owners and people at all levels who could be self-actualized, that rights came from the creator and not the state. It, it is true that, that most of these guys were, you know, fairly wealthy at the time, but but not all. I mean, the Adamses were not wealthy. I mean, there was a, you know, there, there was a, they set up a society of businessmen, basically, of people who could create, and um, that there would be both upward and downward mobility. And a good example of that is that some of the wealthiest people in America at the time of the founding were no longer wealthy. I mean, we didn't have a set aristocratic control. So even though they were, it's an imperfect system, at the time it was really quite revolutionary, or maybe you might say counter-revolutionary, in that it was the first time that you had a system that was not based on hereditary aristocratic upper echelon control with a king that derived his rights from God the divine rights of king. We didn't have that. We had the individual derives his rights from God. And then the individual then, through a, through a, a process of republicanism, gives a limited grant of power to the state. But what's happened is, as you say, I mean, starting in the late 19th, early 20th century, you had, you know, the, for, the frontier thinkers, the so-called progressives, people like Woodrow Wilson, people like like um, Randolph Bourne and uh, James and Crowley and these other guys developed this idea that um, you know the, the Constitution was an anachronistic. They never said why, but that it was not suitable for today. Now they needed to have a, a corporatist state where governing powers would be transferred to unelected officials. Governing powers were transferred to the money power was transferred to a Federal Reserve system, which is privately owned. You know, the cultural power, because of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, gave tax exemptions to these foundations and nonprofits, which the very wealthy people were then able to transfer their fortunes to, and they would dictate the future of the culture and how things would have run. You know, then you had, you know, unelected bureaucracies set up, or quasi-government bureaucracies, which are un unaccountable to elections. You know, the whole idea of the American system of checks and balances was that you had elected officials who then operated in a context of a constitution, not these unelected entities. And then after World War II, it accelerated even on an international level with the United Nations and with all these international NGOs, and they started coming in and basically, you know, make, making policies and passing laws. They don't call them laws, they call them other things, but they, we find that they're taking over more and more aspects of our lives. And it's completely contrary to the American idea, which is the rights come from God, the Creator, and that we as individuals then give the government a very limited grant of power. In a way, it's it's a very anarchistic idea, the American idea, and that it favors an anti-government position. We don't trust government, you know. I mean, uh, Thomas, who was it? Uh, Thomas Paine in his uh, Common Sense. It was the, it was the pamphlet that made the American Revolution. He said that. Um, Government is evil. It's not to be trusted. And that's that, That's how the Americans look at this. That's how we used to look at it. Now, of course, you have the left, which worships government. But anyway. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with just sort of everything you said. Uh, the only partial exception would be, I do think in the American Revolution, there was a class element to that. But I would uh, qualify that by saying 
that the class system that developed in the United States was markedly different from a, from a traditional feudal class system in the sense that a feudal class system is based on a scribe status. You're just born into a class and that's what you are, period. It's kind of like the Indian caste system. But uh, a modern uh, class system is fluid. It's, it's based, it, it, there is possibility of mobility between classes. That doesn't mean it's not class stratification or that, that particular classes don't uh, influence the state. But there, but there is a different, much different kind of class system in a modern in, you know, industrial capitalist society that you see in a traditional uh, feudal system. So yeah, absolutely, I agree on that. And I agree uh, with much of what you're saying about the cultural uh, foundation of Americanism, or what you're saying, uh, uh, or as you, uh, whatever we want to call it, um, in the sense that uh, even a lot of anarchists uh, recognize that. For instance, um, there was a, an American anarchist woman in the late 19th and early 20th century named uh, Voltaire de Clare, who wrote uh, an essay called uh, Anarchism in the American Tradition, and she was talking about some of these, uh, this Jeffersonian cultural ethos that had shaped uh, much of American traditional culture. And there was another uh, anarchist from around the same time named Benjamin Tucker, who had a branch of anarchism that was very individualistically oriented, cited Thomas Jefferson as a direct influence, and there were other anarchists in places like Europe, like in Russia, for example, the Russian anarchist Kropotkin, Pointed, pointed to that and said, yeah, you know, anarch individualist anarchism is a very American uh, thing in a cultural sense because of this, because America does have this kind of uh, laissez-faire Jeffersonian tradition. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the cultural foundations. And also, I would agree in the sense that for a society to have a particular kind of political or economic system, you do need to have a cultural underpinning for that. And when I gave the example of of Gromsky, I was pointing out that he recognized this. You know, he recognized mm -hmm. that for a society to have a certain political and economic system, whatever you want it to be, the, the cultural foundation has to be there. And that's why he was big on the left trying to get control of the cultural institutions right. first, which as pointed out, they have uh, over the last century or so. And um, and I so but I, but it's like I would say that all Americans to some degree have had a libertarian education. Oh yeah, it's a libertarian country. I mean, by yeah. nature. All right, my guest is Keith Preston. The book is "Attack the System: A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century." I see that it's available at Amazon. Keith also has a bunch of other books. Keith, I think that the um, while while America, as I say, is we have an anarchist spirit. We are an anarchist society in the sense that we believe that rights come from the individual who derives it from the creator and not from the state, which is a, you know, the, the very philosophical ethos of the American Revolution. But the anarchist movement and also anarchy itself is vulnerable to left-wing subversion in that the left wants to reorder human nature. They want to, and they want to use violence violence is a way to do that you know you can't get people to give up property or to give up freedoms in order for some greater good because no one in their right mind is going to do that you're not going to give up family you're not going to give up love you're not going to give up relationships you're not going to give up property you're not going to give up trade but that's what the left wants because ultimately communism means absolute equality which is and an end to hierarchy, natural hierarchy, which is impossible. So they, they they appeal to the anarchists and they subvert anarchy in their service. And they use anarchy to engage in violence against the establishment because they want to tear down the uh, 
existing government with a dialectical means so they could create a bigger government to serve their purpose. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Kropotkin. He was the author of, either he or Chernoshevsky were the, opposite, the authors of the Catechism of a Revolutionary, where they get in, it was very influential on the, on the Bolsheviks, where they get into how to use anarchist violence as a way to overthrow a society. So people thus find themselves being used as cannon fodder in this revolutionary radical idea, which is anything but anarchist. It's total government authority. And um, it also goes a long way to explain why, for example, in this country, if you take a look at the top 1% richest people and the top you know, government people, in, whether it be in the culture, whether it be in, in corporations, whether it be in, in economics, they're mostly people who lean left politically and who support you know, a harder left move as opposed to a more conservative American, which is, you know, a more diverse politically and who's into, you know, basically self-interest and self-sovereignty. So my concern, again, is that anarchy is an idea and the anarchist movement can be used by and co-opted by the left. What do you think? Well, um, as far as the book you're referring to, The uh, Catechism of a Revolutionary, the author of that is actually Sergei Machaya, not, okay. not uh, Bakunin. Um, I mean, not not for Plotkin. Nachaya um, was a Russian terrorist. He was uh, associated with a movement called Nihilism, which is, uh, you know, similar to what you're describing. It's just kind of about the violence for its own sake, you know, terrorism for terrorism's sake. Um, so so he, he was had some association with some figures involved in anarchism, but he's not really considered part of the anarchist trajectory or history. Um, but, but that tradition does exist, that kind of terrorism for terrorism's sake does exist. Um, the uh, and it's also true. I think you're correct that historically anarchists have had a problem with uh, conflict between uh, themselves and between Marxists and and, and other state-centric socialists and others with similar views. Uh, you saw that in the First International. You mentioned the First International when there was a conflict between the uh, Proudhonists and the Communists on one hand and the Marxists on the other. The Marxists. Favored this kind of uh, French revolutionary version of socialism, this kind of Jacobin influenced uh, socialism, where it's all about seizing control of the state and uh, imposing a revolutionary dictatorship, and then expanding this, you know, kind of a, a leftist imperialism, which is what Napoleon was doing back in the early 19th century. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the Marxists eventually became that. Uh, and I, I think that you're absolutely correct about that. I, in fact, I've had some uh, long standing debates with a lot of anarchists about this. Uh, one uh, issue like that now that's pop, that, that's uh, prominent is the question of these people called the Antifa or the Antifa. I was going to ask you about that. What I see the Antifa as being is exactly what you're describing. I think they are a movement of hard left, you know, fanatical, messianic, Jacobin um, ideologues that are trying to co-opt the, the name of anarchism or the, or the name of, of radicalism generally. Uh, to advance an agenda that's you know just as bad as anything anybody from the establishment promotes. Uh, so it's this is there's always been this problem that anarchists have had, and that is co-optation from uh, the hard left. You know, co-op, whether it was Bolshevism or, or Marxism-Leninism, or whether it was uh, whether today is something like the Antifa, or and there's other issues like this as well. So I don't think we would really be in disagreement with that. In fact, I have spent a lot of time over the last you know, 20 years 
uh, a lot of ink and a lot of bandwidth um, criticizing anarchists who fall into this trap, and I'm widely reviled by many anarchists for, or, or some anarchists by uh, for pointing these kinds of things out. But yeah, I mean, the, the uh, as I see it, anarchism is a type of radical centrism in the sense that uh, just as it's opposing the establishment, you know, the, the state, the ruling class, or whatever. You, there's always the danger of co-optation or infiltration or um, suppression by uh, extremists from the far right or the far left, whether it's uh, communists or, or Antifa or uh, similar tendencies from the left or, or also from the right. I mean, there's also uh, the, you know, there's also fascists and, and national socialists and all of that kind of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, that that I think is really in, in terms of trying to build a movement and organize. That's one of the main things that anarchists uh, need to guard against. While attacking the establishment, they also need to guard against the uh, uh, potential co-optation by either the far right or far left by building a very distinctive identity uh, for anarchism that's independent of these kinds of things. A lot of a lot of anarchists are. Uh, you know, on one hand, they're hysterically anti-fascist. They're Antifa, the most obvious example. Uh, but they're all—they seem oblivious to the idea of co-optation or infiltration from the left, which actually historically has been more of a problem for anarchists than than the other way around. Um, so, yeah, I don't—I don't know that we would have any disagreements on this this basic issue. Um, the uh, and, and as far as the elites, you're talking about the one percent and all of that. I, I think the the vision of the one percent is they are certainly on the left in a sense that they are cultural leftists and the, and the reason for that is because what they envision is uh, a global system where markets and, and trade and the economy and all of that is integrated across national borders. Uh, they are, you know, they're, they're very much for the global economy, they're the main people who benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And parallel to that, they want to have international institutions that are set up to manage the global economy and manage the world order under their leadership and that's why we've got the IMF, the WTO, the World Bank, the EU, the uh, the United Nations, right. the, and we could just keep NATO and we sure. could just keep... It's a world creeping list. world order. But uh, so if you were to, I mean in a sense this is the great paradox of anarchy which is that you know, by nature, anarchists are individualists, they're localists, they don't want to have government control over them and what they, the way they conduct their lives, and they want to control to the highest degree possible their own lives and their own destinies. And yet, you're talking about some kind of a unified ideal or idea of anarchism, um, and you mentioned pan-secessionism in your book. What is that about, and where do you think anarchy today is, and what role can it play both in the United States and around the world? Well, pan-secessionism is a tactical concept. It's not an ideology. Like, I've had people confuse it with an ideology. They say, well, what are the basic tenets of pan-secessionism? And I'm like, well, there's, there aren't any. I mean, that's like saying, what are the tenets of voting, or what are the tenets of, of signing a petition, or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a tactical concept. Now, a lot of people always also confuse it with something like mere mere political secession. Uh, certainly, political secession could be a part of pan-secessionism. For example, uh, you may have regions that break away from 
uh, larger nations and things like that. You know, like the 13 colonies broke away from the British Empire, the, the, the South tried to separate from the North, or the uh, you know, or uh, Czechoslovakia became the Czech Republic and Slovakia and things like that. So that mm -hmm. kind of thing could be a part of pan-secessionism. But there's also the idea of, of dissociating yourself from the system in a wider sense by building uh, what are happening, uh, has commonly been called dual power or alternative infrastructure or counter-economics, all these different kinds of ideas where you're actually building an alternative infrastructure to state systems and to systems that are dominated by the establishment. And that includes not just politics, but it also includes economics, culture, uh, you know, uh, education, all, media, all kinds of other things. Sure. Like, like what you're doing is, is part of pan-secessionism. Right. Because you're doing alternative media. You're not part of the establishment media. You're not on Fox or MSNBC or CBS or ABC or, or whatever. Sure. Uh, you're you're do building alternative media, promoting alternative ideas. So that's what pan-secession is. It's about building this kind of alternative uh, cultural, political, economic, uh, you know, educational, uh, whatever infrastructure, uh, in a way that is eventually supersedes the ruling class institution. You know, the Wobblies had an idea for this. They called it building the new society in the shell of the old, and that's what more or less pan-secessionism is a modern version of that, or a modern version of the old syndicalist idea of the general strike. Um, now, also the idea in terms of you know, what, what do we have to have a unified ideal? Uh, this is another debate that I have with some anarchists, because there are some anarchists that, um, as one anarchist I know, was referred to them as world domination anarchists, you know, this idea that there has to be some universal uh, system or some universal idea, and I would say no. To me... Sounds like a contradiction in terms. Right, exactly. To me, anarchism, like there's a there's a quote from Anthony Sutton, who uh, oh, yeah. is... He, he, now, he was, as far as I know, didn't identify as an anarchist, but he might as well have been because I think he had some really powerful insights into some of this stuff. Oh, yeah, America's Secret Establishment. Exactly. Great stuff, and, yeah. Well, well, one of the, well, I'll get to the, I'll, I'll mention the quote first. Um, there's a quote from Anthony Sutton where he says that basically the alternative to the system is things like voluntary associations, voluntary communities, local self-rule, decentralized societies. That's what anarchism is, to me at least. And you know, and Sutton, I think, was also very interesting in the sense that he understood that you know, American-style state capitalism and things like fascism and communism were all different points on the same triangle. Mm -hmm. They weren't they weren't so much enemies with each other as much as they were interconnected with each other. Uh, and the, their rivalries were intramural rivalries. I think that's an aspect of Sutton that's very important. But there's, um, but. Uh, but within the framework, though, of what someone like Sutton is describing, decentralized societies, voluntary communities, voluntary associations, local self-rule, that creates the infrastructure, the framework for an infinite variety of diversity. Uh, and when I say diversity, I mean real diversity. Like we hear, it's a shame the, the way that uh, you know, political correctness and all of that has given the, the concept of diversity a bad name. Because what, what they do is, is what, what PC does is it reflects the uh, ruling class values in the sense that, well, they mean diversity because they want to sell you know consumer products made in China with slave labor to lots of different people with different skin colors and sexual orientations. Or they want to be able to utilize the labor of people of lots of different uh, skin colors and genders and sexual orientations and all that. Uh, so, you know, so that's why, for example, they're so big on mass immigration and breaking down barriers between nations and stuff like that. 
uh, because it's all part of integrating the everything into this global uh, hegemony. And they're against the sovereign nation state. Exactly. Which yeah, they view as an old-fashioned thing. They're, they're against sovereign anything. They're, sure. You know, their sovereignty they favor is their own. I mean, they, they envision themselves as the Hobbesian Leviathan. That's what they aspire to. Uh, but, all uh, under the garment of science. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Under this kind of technocratic scientism, yeah, yeah that's like the new, the new religion or the new theocracy or something like that. And they use a lot of quack science. We may add that's a whole different subject, but it's an interesting one. And well, para, but uh, but so, anarchism is, is by definition decentralized, voluntary, pluralistic, and diverse, and that can include all kinds of things. You know, it's uh, you know, the, I I am totally opposed to any kind of one size fits all approach to anarchism. You know, I'm, I, I, for example, believe that with anarchism, yes, you can have communities and institutions that do reject things like technology, like the Luddites, like you have the Amish, for example. They're a good example of that. It's a group that actually practices this. Mm-hmm. Or you can have religious, centum-oriented uh, uh, communities, like, say, the Mormons or whatever, or you can have hippie communes, or you can have vegetarians, right. or you can have diversity. As long as they're not imposing it on someone else, it's voluntary. Exactly, exactly. Right. To me, that's what anarchism is. Sure. And regrettably, you do find people in anarchist circles that don't really seem to understand this. And I've spent decades arguing with these people, and you know, it's these little intramural uh, skirmishes. But you were mentioning science, for example. Uh, I've been criticized by some anarchists for providing... Uh, an open forum for scientific and medical and historical heretics. You know, for example, if somebody has a point of view that from a scientific perspective is considered heresy, or from a historical or from uh, you know, a heterodox historical uh, or orthodox historical interpretation of history is considered heresy, or from a medical perspective is considered heresy, I still want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. Uh, and, exactly. and also when it com- comes to contentious moral views, you know, I'm, I'm not really into the animal rights thing, for example, but people who believe in vegetarianism or veganism for animal rights reasons or what, just whatever kind of reasons, fine, I'm all, I'm all for hearing the, their point of view. Uh, same thing with the, the pro-life point of view. I'm, I want to hear what, what their uh, beliefs are and why they believe this. And uh, you do find some anarchists that are into uh, you know, they're more interested in being leftist fundamentalists than they are in being interested. Well, it's a complete contradiction in terms. I mean, a true anarchist wants to welcome all individual views into the discussion. I mean, it's the classic Greek Socratic method yes. where yes. everything is, yes. there's a roundtable discussion. Everything stays in that system. It's Talmudic also. The Talmud is like that. All the different people got to say stuff that's completely contradictory. It all is there. You know, and then, you know, it's a trusting of the individual to govern themselves, to determine what's right. I view that's what talk radio should be all about. That's what I try to do. You know, I have people on from all views. I try to debate or discuss. They'll let the listeners decide what's what's right, you know, what's real. Anyways, Keith, we're reaching toward the end of the program. So I'd like you to let my listeners and viewers know how they could get out, get more information about you and about your works and your books or anything else you want to talk about? Uh, well, if you just Google my name, Keith Preston, you can find all kinds of things about me on the Internet, including what my enemies and critics have to say about me. Uh, but you can read right. all that stuff and see, make up your uh, mind for yourself. 
Um, but uh, there's a website, attackthesystem.com. It's the same title as the book, Attack the System. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that book, I mean, that website has a, it's, it's an old website. It's been online for about 20 years. Uh, so there's th- there are literally thousands and thousands of blog posts there and, and uh, uh, essays and, and things like that, uh, as well as I have about half a dozen books, and you can order those from the website. I think there are links that take you directly to Amazon.com, or you can order them from the publisher. The publisher is called Black House Publishing that's based in London. Uh, either one of those is fine. Uh, so you know, if you really want to get deep into my work, you know, there, I have about half a dozen books that are available, um, and then probably hundreds of essays and thousands of blog posts. And I'm also there are also a lot of podcasts that I've done over the years. I used to do a podcast for Attack the System. Uh, I'm doing another one now that's more deals with you know uh, deals with more mainstream uh, news issues and pop culture issues. Like uh, it's called Kick the Puppy. And then I'm also a commentator for a number of international media outlets, primarily uh, press TV, but I've also been on Russia Today and, uh, and Sputnik and some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, just Google my name and you can find all kinds of interviews and, and podcasts and interviews of uh, you know, radio interviews, television interviews, podcast interviews, podcasts that I've done personally where I'm actually the host, uh, writings of mine, books, uh, all of these kinds of things are available. All right, great. Listen, Keith, I'll put a link up to my YouTube channel for this, for your site as well. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. All right, Keith, take care. Likewise. All right.